Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Subscriptions for Authors podcast. Today, we're going to be talking all about how you can set up the foundation for your subscription. And we have a very special guest in the author, Terry Bruce. She's been a great friend of ours in the Subscriptions for Authors Facebook group for almost a year now. I feel like somewhere between a half a year and a year. It's been awesome. She's a fantasy and adventure author and honestly blends genres together, which if you're an author who doesn't necessarily fit into a predefined subgenre or might be trying to write to market, but not for the same market always, this might be a really interesting podcast episode for you because we talk all about how Terry is looking to build her community, how she's found some success in moments, but also some of the moments in which things haven't gone as planned. And before we actually started this podcast episode, I asked Terry what she thought we should title this as, and she suggested that we should use the titles, the things they don't tell you about how to apply author marketing advice, or it's easier to learn from those who first fail than from instant successes. I think those sorts of ideas give you a really good sort of introduction into what we will be chatting about today. Terry has learned a ton in her career as an author and has a lot of amazing insights for us that span from how to recruit fans and social media, how we should price and actually communicate our subscription to our fans, and how to think about building a community that spans genres in our broader author marketing plan and really career. So her insights were amazing. This is a longer episode than usual because me and Amelia actually start giving her some advice. She starts giving us some advice and it becomes, we think, a really vibrant conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you're not already a part of the Descriptions for Authors Facebook group, you should join it because you can meet amazing people like Terry, who she's very generous with her time and insights in the group, and also plenty of other subscription authors. We have like, I think 1,400 people in there now, which is amazing, and we'd love to have you as well. Enough of me talking now. We'll get to the interview. Me and Amelia with Terry Bruce. So, Terry, I'm so excited to be with you. Honestly, you're one of the people who is the most insightful and certainly the most friendly in the Descriptions for Authors Facebook group, which is where we met and from there have become like good, good virtual friends. So it's amazing to actually talk to you today. And I'm really excited to share your journey, your writing journey with the world or just the people listening to this podcast. But hi, everyone. We're very grateful for you. So Terry, I want to just start by asking what kind of got you in descriptions because you've been writing for a long time. You've been doing this for a long time. And obviously we all know that subscriptions is not like exactly at least at the moment the traditional thing to do so what got you interested in it to begin with it, it's interesting because i've been thinking about the subscription model for a while and there's kind of two things that kind of like came together for me one is i started sort of my publishing career if you will writing serial fiction in high school i would type it on my mother's typewriter her electric typewriter and pass it out on the bus to school you know, to friends. So I had started out writing that way. And then in college, I was writing fan fiction and posting oh. weekly chapters. And I loved that model. I love that immediacy. I'm a very slow writer. I am a turtle writer when it comes to my novels. It's like two to four years between books. So I do like that immediacy of being able to connect with readers faster, to be able to get work into their hands while they're waiting for like a completed book. And then at the same time, I've looked at what's been going on in publishing in terms of revenue that's coming out of 
both indie publishing and small press publishing, even with self-publishing these days, where you know advances are drying up, royalty splits are you know in the toilet, and you look at the amount of pirating that's happening, like sales, like it's such mm -hmm. a struggle. And I thought to myself, you know, like Charles Dickens started out doing serial fiction. Like a lot of the classics were published in magazines as serial yeah. fiction. And so I was like, I think it's time to go back to that model where authors connect directly with their readers. You control your revenue. You are forming this community, have that closer connection. You get that immediacy of feedback. Like it is just a win-win across the board for everything that authors and readers are trying to do in the way that they can connect. And I was like, we kind of need to go back to that. And it wasn't until the last few years where the technology has shown up. Cause I was like, I'm not going to get a printing press in my basement and crank out pamphlets like Ben Franklin, right. And, and Thomas Paine and stand on the corner and give those out every week. How do I do this? And now the technology is finally catching up and we're going back to that. And then of course there's apps, you know, now on your phone too, where you can do serial fiction. And I was like, this is the moment. So yeah, that's what brought me in. Wow. That's, I love I, that. <laughs> the serial fiction like in college and fan fiction is, is amazing. I think you and Amelia have a lot in common with that. That's yeah, so definitely. Oh my gosh. I, I didn't even know that you started with serial fiction. So I think that's really, really cool. Yeah. I missed my fan fiction days. I used to, we used to do round robins. I, do some virtual readings with this other group that helped organize. And we were actually going to do some round Robin in December because I miss those so much where you just like somebody starts a thread on the forum and then other authors just jump you just in go. and you're co-creating. Yeah. You're co-creating stories. And we're like, let's co-create some stories. And then we'll just, we'll wrap those suckers up into book form and get those out to readers too. Is like this like freebie bonus thing. And it's, it's fun and it's creative. You, you spark off other authors it's like mm -hmm. brain candy, you know, kind of like when you need a palate cleanser, you just need to have some fun as a writer. And so I was like, yeah, I miss those days so much because it was great to be in an author community and a, a reader community. And that's at the same the, time. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it just, it's great. That's what I love about serial fiction. I, I love, like you were saying, I love like the instant like connection you get with your readers. It's like the, the feedback is instant and just like being able to see them like love something or hate something in a good way or, or maybe even a bad way too like that's why I started with serial fiction and why I like it's like huge in my business yeah and I love what authors are doing too like there's some authors that have banded together right to run a, mm -hmm. a Patreon or run a Kickstarter and are doing box sets and I think that's what's so great these days you know with the rise of like self-publishing where authors can form community together yeah and that then feeds into the reader community. Like they can pool their readers, give their readers more content, more content faster. So it's a value added for both sides. But as an author, you're not out here struggling alone with the marketing and struggling with production and having to do everything yourself if you can get a group of authors. And so I do love the flexibility with the subscription service where you can do it solo or you can do it with other authors and community as well. Yeah, no, that's something that I heard it, on the Story Grid podcast, which I listen to a lot of writing podcasts. That's one, not no shame on the podcast host, but it's like down at like maybe mid tier in my arsenal. I won't listen to everyone, but I'll listen to some. But I believe the, the host of that podcast where this was like three years ago, but talking about the rise of like self-publishing 3.0, which this is a, such a confusing term because 
people don't really I don't really know what it means when I say it. So I'll just like clarify that and say that people like Orna Ross, who runs Alliance of Independent Authors, and she's wonderful. And she actually published a book called Self-Publishing 3.0 that I recommend people read it. It's a short read, like two to three hours. And it's all about kind of direct sales, authors taking back control from platforms and where this is all going, which I thought was super cool. Their focus when they were highlighting Self-Publishing 3.0 was actually about writers forming what you're talking about, Terry, these small collectives. And mm -hmm. it almost feels like both of these trends are working in convergence. It's just there's no like clear definition of it because we're not we're still creating that future as we speak. But I find that to be really, really cool. And it reminds me of something that I think I've mentioned on this podcast before, the Dr Dream SMP. I, I don't know if I have mentioned on this podcast, but you were talking about serial fiction, Amelia. And, and Terry, you said that it's about bringing closer, like fans and authors being in the same place, that community being one. It reminded me of the culture right now in gaming. And if you're yeah. like in a world like mm. Minecraft or Roblox, which there are like literally hundreds of 17 year olds making like $500,000 plus a year, like streaming Minecraft and Roblox. So we just have wow. to like, let that sit in. Like that's <laughs> market. Minecraft is Minecraft alone generates more revenue and like downloadable collectibles than like most of the ebook market in the United States. So, and that's not saying that like, oh, people don't read it. People love reading. It's that these immersive worlds, people are willing to pay yeah. a ton to be a part of. Like these people, I know this from my brother. My brother's paid like a thousand dollars to be part of video game stuff. And he's like, he's a 19, not an amazing decision on his part financially. I'll say that because he went broke for it. But <laughs> these stories, he was fine. It was a summer job. You know, he could make it back next summer. You can do these things as a teenager. But when I thought about this all, I was thinking like, this is open conversation at this point, but is this why LitRPG does so well in serial fiction? Because that comes from the video game yeah. community already, that behavior where we're in these worlds together, we're building, we're creating, we're in these online servers where we're collaborating to create these real-time stories, like something like Dream SMP does. So then when you actually take it to the text form, which, spoiler, text is never going away. We love reading. They just do the same thing and then have like taken over the Amazon store. I don't know if that's like, am I just speaking out my mind or is that real? I think it's not just the the lit RPG, but a lot like games in general, right? Like some of these worlds, like Final Fantasy and stuff. And mm. like, it's the community, it's the world that people have built. And I go to several conventions every year, sci-fi fantasy conventions, the big one, Aresia in January in Boston. And it's amazing. And people do costuming, you know, and you'll see people walking around and it, it's just, yeah, it's these immersive worlds and whether it's coming out of movies, I mean, you'll see people, you know, people write Star Wars fan fiction, they write Firefly fan fiction, right? Like it could be television, it can be movies, it can be games. But when you create a world and characters that people want to live in, they live in that. And, you know, some of the, the costuming people, they're spending a lot of money and time mm. and effort and skills and love and craft to create these costumes you yeah. know, people who are writing fan fiction. I've read some fan fiction. There was one fan fiction I read online that I actually contacted the author. And I was like, you can't publish this book because of the copyright characters. Just change the character's name and change and publish this as a romance because this is the most beautiful story I have ever read in my life. So like even fan fiction, you know, the craft, the care, the love that people are pouring into these worlds. And I think that's, you know, the gold standard for any author, right? Is we want to create something that people love that much that they're willing to go broke 
<laughs> collecting our characters, making fan art, costuming, going to the movie, watching the television show, going to the convention, you know, Supernatural, that television show became very popular in part because some fans started a convention and then the convention started bringing in other fans who then fueled the show and the show managed to go, it was 16 seasons that they, they managed to go. They get canceled two or three times and CW had to keep bringing them back because the fans were like, no, we just do not accept this. You must continue. So, yeah. I'm with you. I'm sold on this like immersive world concept. I think we can all feel it, but this is the difficult part, which I think we all know is how do we actually like create this for ourselves and for our readers as authors. And I'm curious, Terry, with, your journey through like a decade in self-publishing and indie publishing, what have been what you've learned about building that sort of community that makes like fans want to like write fan fiction and to dress up as your characters? See, that's the nut I have not cracked. Partly it's been difficult building community and that's kind of on me because I've made every mistake possible going through that journey, but also partly because this mindset is fairly new you know, mm -hmm. I started in publishing 10 years ago. My first novel actually came out 11 years ago. I look, as, as I look at the clock, I'm like, oh gosh, it was August 2012. Yeah, for a book that I sold, yeah, that I started shopping in 2010. It took two years for that book to get sold and published. But it was the traditional sales model, right? And I also was with a publisher. So the publisher took care of a lot of that. But that also means they controlled a lot of that, right? So they were doing the marketing and the sales. Yeah. And so I was free to just keep writing. But that means I had years where I was not connecting directly with fans unless they were emailing me or I was doing an appearance and then I'd meet people and you sign a book and they walk away like, can you give me your email address so I can email you later? That didn't happen. So it's been hard to like try to go back and then like find people and be like, hey, I'm still here and you really liked my books 10 years ago. Now you can connect with me directly. So I think for some of us who've been around for a while and didn't have didn't create those books, you know, that went viral that are very big. You know, I'm not a Kelly Armstrong. I'm, you know, none of those kind of like authors like Boucher Khan, right? <laughs> like that have their own convention where you can connect directly with fans. It is a lot harder. And then just the type of stuff that I'm writing, I'm kind of over in a very hard to define genre vibe. And we've talked about this, you know, in the, the Facebook group, but like, I'm kind of with like literary speculative fiction. I'm over with like Audrey Nippenager, Tim Powers, China Mieville, a little bit of Neil Gaiman. And I don't really see a lot of like fan fiction about like her fearful symmetry, like maybe The Time Traveler's Wife, which is Audrey Nippenager, but not her other book about ghosts, which is her fearful symmetry. I don't see a lot of like fan fiction and character dressing up because the stories don't lend themselves to that. And my stories are set in the real world. They're kind of also magical realism. So my characters are just sort of like ordinary people. So it'd be a little like hard to dress up and my stories are set in the real world. And so there's sort of not something to like glom onto that can self insert into that world and exist there, which also I think is one of the reasons that for authors like me, it is a little harder to build community, get that engagement, build like a Facebook group, build a subscription because we don't have a world and characters that fans can really connect with in that deep way because so much of what I write is just so much reality. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, it's the world we already inhabit. 
Well, I, I agree, but I also think that for and every genre is different. But for for the romance genre, certainly there's a lot of people writing paranormal romance, which I don't think I know of anyone who's like actually been with a werewolf in real life. But that would be cool. But so there are fantastical things in romance, but also so much of romance is small town contemporary romance. It's you know set in worlds and characters that situations that are very familiar and sometimes like scarily familiar it's why we relate to things that are in romance and i don't think that genre is alone in that thriller is, is similar but i think there's a huge difference between each genre so I, i'm wondering because now we can dive a bit deeper into like who your readers are because we're just talking about readers broadly now and i think that you know romance readers probably no matter what the subgenre are generalizing like to be a part of community more so than readers of something like maybe crime crime thrillers i don't see as much fan fiction really ever about any crime thrillers. There's not people who are doing that as much. Certainly, I wouldn't say I've seen fan fiction about things like post-apocalyptic survival fiction. There's not really many communities of post-apocalyptic survival fiction. That doesn't mean people don't love it. It doesn't mean anything like that. It also doesn't mean that subscriptions can't work for you. But I guess we're in one podcast. We can't talk about all about subscriptions in one, one, one go. So let's focus on this community point. And I want to ask you, Terry, as you say you write this nebulous-ish, but you also called it literary speculative fiction, which I feel like I have an idea of. But I want you to give me an idea of who you think your readers are. Not like, oh, Bob and Jill, but what are they interested in? What kind of person are they? When I find out, I'll let you know. <laughs> and I think that's been the struggle for me for like 10 years. Like all the advice that's out there about like connecting deeply with readers, forming community is like, identify your, you know, step one, identify your ideal reader. And I'm like, okay, but how, <laughs> when you write something that's a little more complex or sort of not straightforward, it's like, yeah, I need the roadmap for that please. And I have not found it. And that's what's been really mm. difficult and scary about kind of moving to like the subscription model. You know, I just finished David Gogren's uh, book, the Change the superfan. Yeah, the superfans one. And, you know, the the model where it's don't cast wide net, cast, you know, a very focused net. You know, in the traditional sales funnel, you fish in a lot of ponds and you throw all your bait out there to attract every kind of fish and you bring them into the funnel and let them self-select out, right? And so more leads is better. And the model where it's, no, you can do more with just, a hundred super fans, right? So you just need to cast a very focused line and fish in one spot and just get a small number of people who are the right fit. Well, for someone like me, that's terrifying because it's like, I get two people from that pond and one person from that pond. My readers cross genres. I get a lot of urban fantasy readers, for mm. instance, from my novel series, which is set in the real world. And it's sort of urban fantasy, but it, there's no monster slaying. And so people who want the real adrenaline action-packed urban fantasy don't connect with my story. But the people mm. who like the magical realism aspect of urban fantasy like my story. Literary speculative fiction. Where do you find those people? I find that most of my readers read paperback and not eBooks. So I do much better hand selling and at events where I can sell paperbacks directly to people. But a lot of those events, it's hard to get those people's like address, like to follow up with them, right? They buy a book at your table and then they go away and you hope they come back and sign up for your newsletter. 
So mm. I, have, I have an idea. Me for too. That. <laughs> okay. And I have some overlap with Neil Gaiman, China Mieville, Tim Powers, Slipstream New Weird. That's also kind of what I write, but not exactly because a lot of those, like in Chuck Wendig's Blackbird series, but like Chuck writes, and I love Chuck's work and I love the Blackbird series, but it's very dude centric. <laughs> it's very dude literature versus I'm sort of the feminist version of a Czech Wendig. So his audience is not entirely my audience. So it's all these like little pieces and like different authors I can identify that I have overlap with, like Shirley Jackson, but not if you're like into the hardcore horror aspect of hers, but her as her horror is sort of this slow, weird, you know, psychological piece. So some of my work, my short stories cross with that, not my fantasy series. So yeah, it's been like, pieces. So it's not like I know who these people are. It's an amalgamation of a lot of different pieces that come together to form my audience, which A, makes it hard to find them and B, hard to find content and value added community building stuff that appeals to all of them because they're all coming for different pieces of what I do. And it's hard to find like what that core nugget is. I understand, but I think we have a challenge for us this podcast, <laughs> which is let's try and at least talk about it and we can figure it out because that would be fun. And in this journey, we'll be able to learn a lot about what a lot of people struggle with their description. But I want to let Amelia share what her idea was for your in-person signings to be able to connect and maybe get someone's contact information there. What was your idea, Amelia? So I actually have two things. But the first is that I'll go, I'll go through. So what I do at book signings is I usually bring my iPad or I bring like a sheet of paper that basically says like, hey, do you want to sign up? For my newsletter, put your email down right here. And a lot of people sign up. Even if they don't buy a book, they'll put their email down because they like could be interested. So that's something you can possibly do. So you don't have to like hope that they'll come back. You can immediately say like, if you don't want a book now, you can put your name and email on my newsletter and I'll follow up with you later with a different book I might have that I didn't bring today or something like that. I have done that sign up sheet voluntarily give me your email. And I think that has not worked well, but I think the, the added piece that you had there, the key is, and I'll follow up with like a free book or something. Like if you're offering something of value, then I think yes. that is going to be the hook versus, Hey, I am a complete new to you. <laughs> yeah. Swag pack. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think it's, you got to offer something of value. You can't just ask people like, Hey, voluntarily give me your email you don't know me and now you think you're signing up for spam that's just gonna like scare them off which has been my experience well so a lot of it this sound this everything's about trust at the end of the day so yeah. we all most people have great intentions in, in this framework there's like three kinds of people there's people who are like really good at selling and have bad intentions that's someone like sam bankman freed look him up if you haven't paid attention to the news that's a crazy <laughs> story then there's people who are good at selling and have good intentions. That's what we probably aspire to be. And then there's people who have good intentions and are bad at selling. And there's people who are bad at selling and have bad intentions, but we don't need to really worry about them because you know they're, they're bad at selling to begin with. But I know that to think of us as selling sounds so weird. As creative people, it's like, I'm not a salesperson. And I don't think that we should be a salesperson. I think one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of authors get into is getting so caught up in like the stereotypical internet marketing guy mm -hmm. advice. And we could like dovetail a lot of the self-publishing advice to like the advice that dropshippers give their people when like the psychology of this business is completely different. Competing on pricing 
isn't always what needs to happen, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'll say about this though, is that you should lean into your ability as a storyteller to get people interested. So what is it that excites you about your world? When you sign up to my newsletter, like I'm going to send something really interesting that'll interest the specific kind of person I want interested in my books. Now we'll come back to that, but I do want to share with everyone because I know you all saw it, but for those listening who can't see it, this is a swag pack from Christopher Hopper, who when you go to his site, you can sign up for his mailing list and he asks for your address. And it's like a complicated process, but he does it deliberately because he wants only very high quality leads in his mailing list. He shared in the Facebook group, he has a very high open rate. I won't share exactly what, because it was in the Facebook group and I don't want to like make all of his info public, but I will share that he sent this to me and he says this to every reader. I'm not special. I, well, I'm special because I'm one of his readers, but I'm not like an extra special reader, right? And I just thought, what a nice way to get my address. Like now he knows where I live, which is kind of sounds <laughs> creepy, but I, I'm cool with that. Chris, you can show up at my house anytime and I'll make you dinner. Or actually, my, I'm not going to make you dinner. I'm not very good at that. We'll have to like do takeout or something. But regardless, of, you can show up at my house, Chris. I thought about this is like if you get a fan at a convention, right? If you say, hey, if you want extra books, I'll like ship it to you and sign it, and sign it then. That, that defeats the whole purpose of that fan interaction. But what it could be nice to say is like, hey, I'm actually in the process of like – you could do a little white lie of getting these custom bonuses. They didn't ship in time for this event. But if you want one, I'll just send it to you for free because I couldn't bring it here. What's your address? I, and that, that could be a little bit creepy um, to like a new fan who's like in a whole different area like that. But if it's an existing fan who is showing up at a convention, that could be something that you do. Like I want to send you something. I want to send you a card. And I see people doing this now with their subscriptions where their rewards, again, to people who already trust them are, hey, I'm going to send you a card once a year. Very cheap. So with that, give me your address. And I know this sounds like so, like, why do we care about having readers' addresses? But I think it would be so cool to be able to, again, new books coming out, why send them a newsletter or still send them a newsletter, but you could send them a postcard too. And that would make someone just be like, whoa, I forgot to buy their book after the newsletter, but like they sent me this postcard. I'm just going to put it on my desk. And then if they don't do it right then, they'll remember it later. So, I mean, that's just like marketing 101, be everywhere for the people you want. Um, there's definitely a better way to approach it than just like straight up asking for their address. But for Christopher, right, he's not directing cold readers to his website. The readers who already love him. And then they're like, oh, Christopher wants my address. He doesn't even really mention why. Like, honestly, I didn't really understand why he wanted my address. But I was like, I trust Christopher because I do. And then he sent me this. And I'm like, whoa, what a night. It was a surprise. Like, that's really interesting. But there, the psychology there is he found an ability generate trust in us. So one way you can obviously do that at a convention too, is like talking to your fans, just like you would on social media, talk to them for a long, like you don't want to talk to one person the whole time, but sometimes giving that person that attention. So they like, every author has their sales pitch of like, here's my book. And this is the tagline. And everyone gets that constantly. And if you're the person who's like, how are you doing? How is it here? You, someone might be hit with that and be like, what? You care about how I'm doing? Like, I just had people sell me for the last five minutes. And honestly, I'm tired. That person might be more interested in you because they realize that like your main goal isn't to sell them a book. It's to build a relationship. And then through that relationship, they will hopefully buy your book one day. And I think most authors approach with the sell immediately. And we feel like used car salesmen. Uh, and that's not comfortable for me, at least. It might work for other authors. Well, while you're talking about, my brain is like on fire right now. Like I have 
three different directions I want to go with this conversation and I can't decide which first, but because what you, you said, you said something that just resonated very strongly with me. That was kind of like, you know, light bulb moment. But before we get to that, I will say, yeah, when I do events, I see people like they'll, my poster will catch their eye with the book cover and they want to approach, but they, they go past and they're kind of like side-eyeing because they're worried about that sales pitch. They're afraid like if they make the eye contact, they're going to get sold. Right. And they, they're like, please do not give me the hard sell. And sometimes I'll see people like try, they're like closing in on me, right? Like they're tacking like a sales ship, like a, a sailboat <laughs> because they're, they're getting closer. They really want to check out the book, but they just don't want me to talk to them. And so, you know, and I'm a high introvert. People do not believe that about me, but doing events, I just like sweat through my clothes. I am just like, also don't talk to me, please. But I do genuinely love talking to people one-on-one. -on -one. I don't like doing the sales thing. And so I've developed my own kind of approach where I like sort of make eye contact, but not really where I'm just trying to signal with my body language. It's safe to approach. I will not jump on you and try to force you to buy a book. But yeah, you're right. People just, they don't want that being sold to in that hard sell. And I think this kind of goes to the, the thing that really resonated that you said, it's about trust and doing that trust-based marketing. And I'll share one story, for instance, you know, when you say authors, we get caught up in all that marketing and early on, you know, they said, oh, you need a newsletter. You got to have a newsletter. And so I was like, okay, how do I set up a newsletter and how do I get people to subscribe to this newsletter, blah, blah, blah. And there's many authors who make a very good living selling services to other authors. Oh, my, sorry, my cat is coming up over the top of the computer. So there's newsletter builders that you can do, right? And lots of ways that you can get subscribers to your newsletter. They're cats. My gosh, these are kittens. I got kittens and they're oh. out of control. Amazing. Yeah. And so like, I hear stories of like authors selling their newsletter subscriber list to other authors that this authors who think news newsletter swaps means giving your subscribers to another author where I was just like horrified. I was like, Oh my God, no, those people signed up with you. And if you turn around and sell their names to other people to market to them, like you have broken your trust. Well, I did a newsletter builder where every author puts in, it was 25 or $50. This was quite a few years ago now. And all that money gets pooled to buy a beautiful gift pack, right? There's books and gift cards in this giant package and then market that giveaway. So people enter the giveaway and there's a disclaimer that says you were signing up for these authors mail list, the 50 authors who are in this giveaway, you're signing up for all their mailing lists by agreeing to enter. That's all above board. That's great. I got the list. I got 5,000 names from that builder, which is amazing. And I imported those into my newsletter list, started sending newsletters and poo hit the fan. I started getting all these complaints about spam. I never signed up for this. Now, in some regards, people sign up for giveaways all the time. They don't read the small print, didn't realize they were signing up for newsletters. I was like, okay, whatever. But it started getting worse and worse. And then I started talking to some of the other authors in the giveaway. And it turns out that the person running this giveaway was reselling names. These names did not come from the giveaway where they were agreeing to sign up for my mailing list. These were names she had sold to authors several times from previous giveaways. Mm. So I've just paid for 5,000 people, it dumped them into my mailing list, and now had them in my mailing list that legitimately I was spamming them. I had basically bought a list and not had people who had opted in to hear from me. And I am still trying to clean up that mess from my mailing list. There's several things that had happened. 
but so yeah, sometimes when you're an author and you're like, I'm trying to build this newsletter and I want to build it fast and you're not building that trust, right? Like that. And it's just a transaction. It ends up being worse for you in the long run than if you do it slow and steady and do it the correct way. And even like I'm doing a lot of book funnel group promos and going back to David Gogren again, like, you know, there was, there's some authors who were like, I sign up for every book funnel promo. And I'm like, I don't know that you can market those well. And you're also grabbing as many leads as possible. And a large percentage of those are not going to be interested in you. And so I moved to a model where I curate what I'm joining very, very carefully. And I've changed my onboarding process too, to be much more authentic and kind of connected. Like, this is how you got to me. You signed up for a book funnel thing. This is literally the book you got from me in that. So I'm connecting my face and name with what they have. So like, oh, okay, that's how I got here to start trying to build that trust. And I think, you know, as you were talking about the authenticity of connection is what builds that trust. And a lot of times as authors, we're so focused on the product and the merchandise and not that authenticity. So like you said, getting a card from an author where people are like, who would want that? I do printed chapbooks that I send with my Christmas card. And then I always have extras that I've started giving out as like giveaway prizes. And people don't expect that. And they're like, I got a mail from you, like something tangible. That's amazing. And you're like, it's a chapbook I printed on my home computer, but okay. It <laughs> but is so that, thoughtful. Yeah, yeah it, that's people what it is. And like, yeah. want to be thought of. We live in a world in which we're all one of 2 billion users on Facebook or now 3 billion, one of a billion people here and, and no one's thinking of us. We have all these creators, influencers that have hundreds of thousands, millions of subscribers. They can't possibly be there for each of their fans. But I think this is the interesting part because when you say authentic, I think that word can be nebulous. And I also think that I want to maybe share something that could be helpful as well to people, which is that I think that your readers develop trust when you take them on an emotional journey that meets an unmet desire of theirs. And it can be a short journey. And when you start to resonate and create those emotions inside of someone, you begin to build what is called a parasocial relationship with them, where they begin to view you and or your characters and or your world and maybe a combination of all like they would a friend. And that is a very powerful neurological mechanism that when you bring a bunch of people who are under that spell into the same place, a la a community, then you could, or I don't think that was the right word, via a community. That's way better. I like don't know where that came out. Via a community, then you can actually do something that I think most authors don't fully understand yet where this is. I think I'm confident going in self-publishing, which is that as creators online, not only is trust essential to sell books, but most YouTubers, for instance, make about 70% of their income from brand advertising. Now, there's a completely different business model there. I don't see authors making that or advertising being a huge thing. But if I'm a YouTuber, and sometimes Instagrammers, the very niche audiences, I've literally seen Instagrammers with about like five to 10,000 followers drive 70 to $80,000 sales for a brand with one post for a brand that like isn't theirs that they've never posted about before just one post and it's a genuine post because the audience trusts them like that is a tremendous amount of money and that brand you you bet is willing to give them 20,000 plus to make one post now these are people who like they're upper upper echelon of engaged communities but that's on a social media platform on Instagram email newsletters you get 
typically it's thought of as being worth more, but all of it's just numbers. Really, it all comes back down to trust. And if you have an engaged newsletter list that trusts you of five to 10,000 people, you, especially if you understand your readers, are able to then sell them anything. Now, that is a dangerous word because you should not sell them anything. You shouldn't, you shouldn't sell them everything, but you can sell them things adjacent to your books that either are your products or other people's products and get paid a very handsome amount to do that. And that's a revenue stream where if someone like you, Terry, who's publishing a book every two to four years, it might be tough just from a royalty standpoint and from an income standpoint to have book royalties be at all. And I know here, like we talked about subscriptions and subscriptions being this recurring revenue stream that could hopefully solve that for you, but it's not going to be the only thing in your business. There should still be more. And I think that there's this valuable sector that like authors haven't even tapped into, but authors have some of the most engaged and trusted audiences in the world, like compared to all these other influencers online, yet the influencer marketing industry is about to hit $15 billion a year, which is massive. So this is something that authors have just not even stepped into. And it's because I think we fail to understand that trust is everything. The biggest creators in the world, the people who have million subscribers on YouTube, who get people watching them on Twitch for four hours each night, and they're not like throwing online shows. They're just sitting in their desk, their computer. They are like so gung-ho on trust. And they understand that like everything is about their relationships, their audience. And when you come in and create a marketing email that just looks like everyone else, you basically have already started to damage that trust because they're like, I thought we had something unique, but we had like something cool here, but you just sent me this boring email that just has three different panels, tells me the latest thing you did, the latest work in progress, go buy your book and that's it. Like I will press delete on that. And 95% of readers will also press delete on that. Guilty as charged. And you know, when I, I use this word authentic and I agree that is sort of nebulous, but I think that's part of that trust. Like there's that Venn diagram because like, I think for me, you know, I was told, oh, you need to get a newsletter because that's the only thing you'll be able to control and reach those readers. And I came late, you know, I was already five years into my publishing career at the point where I was starting a newsletter and I had sold my books, you know, and those people had bought those books and gone away. And so I was kind of like, well, what am I supposed to say in a newsletter? And because I don't have a clear vision for what I'm communicating, I think that those newsletters don't feel authentic because it's just like, here's the latest news on me, you know, and I think that comes through where it's like, yeah, this is clearly just like a rote exercise and it's like everybody else's newsletter and it's clearly just a sales push. Like, here's where you can buy my books. Here's the next book that's coming out. So I think that's what the key is, but I think that's also what's really hard, especially for an author like me, where I don't have a clear yeah. brand and niche is... Yes. That authenticity of, of the experience. And I'm struggling to figure out like, what do people want to know or what do they care about? And like, and also it's scary talking to a crowd versus like that one-on-one. -on -one. And I think that's just my mind shift where I have to think about when I'm writing my newsletter, pretend I'm writing it to one person, I'm writing it to a dear friend. And what would I tell them? When I started out, my biggest success as an author I was an, a new author, you know, nobody had heard of me and I needed to get reviews. And the publishing company was doing a little bit of that. And book bloggers were very key then. They're, they're still key now, but not in the way that they were five to 10 years ago. And I, there were book bloggers who had very big blogs, but they weren't reviewing exactly my genre. And I started on Twitter. I joined Twitter at that point. And Twitter had already been around for a very long time. I was late to Twitter. I was like, this sounds like the stupidest thing in the world. And then I joined Twitter and I was like, I love Twitter so much. It's so great for introverts. 
And so I just started following book bloggers and striking up conversations, not even to get them to review my book. And then some of them would actually like volunteer because now we were like friends and they were like, Hey, you have a book coming out. You didn't ask me to review it. I was like, Oh, you don't review this genre. So I didn't think it was worth asking that. Like, Send it to me anyways. And I got some of my best reviews and best, you know, kind of exposure being highlighted on these blogs of people that started from an authentic trust-based relationship that I approached them on Twitter to become friends, not to get them to review my book, not to sell them something. And so I, I have to remember that. And I think authors have to remember that. Of course, I go the other way. I do too much of that and forget. Like for Twitter, I never mentioned that I had a book for a long time. I was like, oh yeah, I probably should occasionally mention that I'm an author that has books. I should do a little sales in here occasionally. And I just realized yesterday, I've been looking at my newsletter onboarding. I'm getting all these new signups that come in through BookFunnel. I don't actually introduce myself in that onboarding. I'm like, here's what you can expect in my newsletter. And I promise not to spam you. I didn't actually tell people what I write. <laughs> I just realized like the bio completely missing. And I was like, oh yeah, these people just grabbed a free book, but they don't know me. I probably should tell them who I am. So I seem to go either 100% marketing with nothing personal or 100% personal and no marketing. And I have to figure out how to like bring that together and do a balanced mix of those two. So that's yeah. after 10 years, that's what I figured out. No, no, no. So like, these are all amazing reflections. And I think you, you clearly, you have all these ingredients that like, if we combine them together, we'll create something beautiful but it's just not the right maybe mixture temperature. So we're gonna figure that out. But I wanna switch the conversation to who your readers are. I know that's a really hard question, but I wanna give everyone just this upfront advice, which is that I, I think genres are a super, super useful framework and they're very, very helpful for a lot, a lot of authors and they're helpful to think about. But a big caveat with this is that we have to understand what a genre is. It's a boundary, right? It's a constructed boundary that is understood by both publishers, readers, and authors that collectively make up the market. But every boundary, first of all, has gray areas, and it also leaves out specific groups of people and can't fully encompass any one particular story. So what that means is that these boundaries are useful in many instances, but maybe not in other instances. And especially someone who's writing across these boundaries, it's very easy to think, well, I'm just all over the place, but are you really? Let's find out. So let's break down. Let's not even use the word genre. We're gonna we're gonna erase that word from our vocabulary just for the time being because it's not helpful to use these pre-existing frameworks. And we're trying to create our own right now. And I'm not saying every author should do this. In fact, most authors probably already write in a genre. It's relatively defined, and you should stick to that because genres have already done the hard work for you. Genres mm -hmm. have already figured out without you needing to do the hard work of what a lot of the values are that readers are really coming to and the emotional resonance that they have in your stories. And it's just a lot easier to then just do that. But so many of us don't want to be pigeonholed to one genre. And so many readers also aren't that way either. So there's an opportunity in this, but we need to figure it out. So I need to ask you, Terry, because we're not going to talk about your research. We're talking about you. What would you say are some common themes across your books? What drives you to write a book that is common across your books? If there is anything, let's, let's challenge ourselves to think about that. It is challenging, but I think I, people who read my work and know me well, read my stories and they go, oh yeah, that's a Terry story. So I definitely have a distinct vibe 
usually sort of set in the real world where things are just a little bit weird. You know, I have a short story where big burly dudes who ride motorcycles actually are unicorns. And if the light shines on them the right way, then you can tell that they're unicorns. And that's where unicorns live these days. I have a short story about it's the end of the world and the government has created a website to help guide you through it. So there's always this little bit of like satirical edge and a little sly humor in there. But overall, my vibe is sort of melancholy. I'm sort of like Peter Beagle. We read all of his stories and they're beautiful, but they're also just sort of a little bit sad or a little bit like, eh, you know, the world's not ending, but the world sort of sucks. So you go, you go. Oh, I was going to say, so me and Michael have a mentor who he always talks about the jobs to be done. So it, it's basically like this concept, like, why do you write your stories? Like, what does it satisfy in you, like emotionally or like, I don't even know, I guess emotionally, like, what is, what are like, behind it all, like deep, deep, deep down, what is, what are you trying to satisfy, like, in your readers? Is there like one theme that gets at that instead of the broader kind of on the surface type of theme? Yeah, see, that's the difficult thing. You know, I do like organizational development in my day job, like goal setting, mission statement stuff. And it's really hard to apply it to me. And when we get to these conversations, I actually feel like, I don't want to say uncomfortable, like you guys aren't making me uncomfortable, but like, I am a Virginia Wolf. I enjoy having written. I do not enjoy writing writer. And so a lot of other authors will say to me, well, if you're not, if it's not fun, why do you do it? I do it because I feel compelled because I can't not. And I also am a Stephen King. I don't make up the stories. This is the way it happened, right? Like, I feel like I am just channeling. Like, my husband's often like, a lot of people are like, I didn't like your ending. Change the ending. I can't because that's not the way it happened. Yeah. Right. So I am not trying, like, I don't have a mission to write uplifting stories to give people hope or to write thrilling adventures. I'm not that kind of writer. I'm stories pop into my head. The, the characters are just talking. They won't shut up until like that story is done. Like they take over my brain and then. And I know when a story is done because everything gets quiet and the story just like mm -hmm. immediately forget the story. If I hadn't written it down, I wouldn't be able to recount it to you. It's gone. So I kind of feel like I'm a very self, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, I write for me, I guess, not for my audience. And so that I think is also part of my marketing challenge is like finding people who are like me, who like these weird little things that I'm creating really just for my own sanity, like just writing and coming up with these weird things that just are there and feel I feel compelled to write but I'm not doing it for any particular purpose other than that so I'm actually the same exact way as you are I I don't Another have any friend yes <laughs> I don't outline I don't do any like pre-work usually I just write the story as it comes to me and like you said I know the story is finished when they stop talking yeah. And when everything goes silent and everything starts to like close up I'm just like oh so this is where we end and yeah. a lot of times my readers, like, they'll want more. And I'm like, I can't give you more because I don't have it. But at least for me, I don't know. Like, everyone's different, obviously. And I don't know if it's, like, the same for you. And if, if it is, you don't even have to, like, say what it is. But I know, like, whenever I write a specific story, I don't know it at the time. But I'll, like, go back and realize, hey, like, I wrote this specific thing because it, like, 
satisfied something in me. So even if it's dark and excuse my language, but like fucked up, it satisfied something in me that I wasn't getting elsewhere or I couldn't find elsewhere in like literature or in movies or whatever I watch, like entertainment wise. And yeah, so maybe look at the stories that you have written and you obviously don't have to like say anything on the on the podcast and just see where you were in that mindset and when the story finished kind of like review it and say hey this is what I got out of the story for me personally maybe my fans got something similar out of it yeah and I think well it's interesting because so like I have a short story collection right and I'm an idea writer like (laughs) characters will come in too and I get attached to my characters but really all my stories are kind of like idea stories. I love idea stories. Like I have a short story. I had read an article. There's a phenomenon and and trigger warning miscarriage, but sometimes a fetus will die in utero and it actually becomes calcified and it basically turns into stone. And I read this article about a Chinese woman who had a stone baby for 42 years. Nobody had ever, and she couldn't get pregnant. Nobody could figure out why. Well, it turns out it was blocking her fallopian tubes and she'd had this like stone baby for 42 years. And so it was like, okay, Hey, that's horrifying. <laughs> like, oh my God. But then it was kind of like, what else is made out of stone? Gargoyles are made out of stone. Maybe that's where baby gargoyles come from. And like, so I ended up writing this short story about it. So it's like weird things like that. Like I love mixing fantasy and reality because I, I grew up in like my grandmother every morning would get up and go in the dining room and have her tea and toast and talk to my grandfather who'd been dead for 20 years, like have an out loud conversation. And that was normal. And I never once asked her, did she, was he talking back? Was she just venting? Cause it didn't matter. It was between her and my grandfather. And so my whole life was like that, like signs, portents, like stuff was just weird, but it wasn't scary weird. And it wasn't horror weird. It was like normal weird. And I write that into my stories, but like my short story collection. So I think they're like these goofy little weird things. So many viewers have been like, these stories are so horrifying. It gave me nightmares that I couldn't sleep. And I'm like, I'm not a horror writer. Am I? Oh, maybe I am. <laughs> so like even what satisfies me and like what's driving me is not necessarily what my readers are getting out of the story. So I was like, hmm. So also the, sometimes I feel like people like my work, but I'm not sure they get me. <laughs> well, I, I know who would be interested in this. This is where I think like we talk about, you were talking about book bloggers earlier and how they're not as important. Kind of, except they're actually like maybe 10x more important since then, except they're not writing on blogs. That's what I meant. Yeah, I I just want to amend that. Like, yeah, Bookstagram and TikTok now, yes. And and YouTube. I've seen YouTube grow where there used to be like one or two creators three or four years ago with 400,000 subscribers. Now there's dozens in the book space that have hundreds of thousands, a million plus, some of the biggest creators culturally especially lifestyle female vloggers have started to get into now becoming book vloggers and are getting hundreds of thousands this is really important but now let's talk about like i think another kind of unique way to find audience because on social media there because you have to everyone has to go through a phase of like endless iteration to actually figure this out. Like you can't just sit there and write this stuff down and the problem with writing books is that this cycle of feedback is way too long. Serial fiction mm-hmm. is a way to, again, make that faster, but not everyone's readership reads in serial fiction. So some readers, like Amelia's readers, she found a lot on serial fiction platforms like Wattpad and Radish. That's wonderful. But not everyone has readers that read serial fiction. 
But if we go to platforms like YouTube, TikTok, there's billions of people there. The issue we always get into is that as authors, we're just like, first of all, getting into the standard marketing things and peddling our books like one else. But then we also fit ourselves into this narrow genre of book talk, which is hugely valuable and very targeted. But then how much can you experiment there when you're really trying to figure out something else? What kind of things are my readers not interested in? I'm not even really trying to figure out what books are yet. Where is that overlap between who I am and what readers want? And I'm just thinking, because I've seen YouTube channels that do what your short stories do that are huge. Meaning like, first of all, like, you know, that, that there, there's people who like this stuff. And it's this bizarre, wacky stories that are somewhat creepy about this weird thing in a Disney park. And they're going to tell you about like, this weird story and, and maybe somebody that's somewhere in a Disney park. And then, and then this other person who's going to talk about this weird, bizarre fantasy meets reality thing in Japan. And, and they're kind of covering things that are like real, but questions, almost like not mysteries, but this kind of like unknown, definitely uncomfortable type of thing. So there's people doing this is the point. And I think that you study creators who are doing this. You could create videos yourself doing this, and it might be uncomfortable like me, Terry, on camera. You don't have to be on camera. You can literally just use your voice, use a voice modifier. They're free online now. And then use music and images overlaying these videos. 90% of creators in this specific subgenre do that anyways. And then you'll be able to test, huh, they seem to really like this idea where I was mentioning this specific thing and this specific thing together, like you know, unicorns meets bartenders. I don't know what really gets people going, but you'll be able to know that and then riff off a short story like that. And you have your perpetual marketing engine because the, the problem is if we write all of our ideas as writers, we sometimes have ideas that we're really compelled for, but I know more writers who have like a hundred ideas and they need to figure out five that they need to really write. And they might feel really compelled for one. Fine, get that out of your system. But then what is this other stuff you're going to write? And I think that one way to iterate those quickly is like you can create 100 TikToks or 100 YouTube shorts way faster than you could create, you know, 100 short stories probably. And if you get good at it, not only can you build an audience, but you can test this kind of thing because you just need to figure it out and you will literally have people start telling you, oh my God, like this really worked. But until you get any feedback, you're just in the dark. And kind of going off of that, like when Michael was talking, it kind of reminds me of at least that short story collection of Love, Death and Robots on Netflix, which is hugely popular. And it's just short stories that are kind of weird, kind of funky about the future and robots. And it, yeah, that's what it reminded me of. But as you were talking, Terry, I was like, I think you're at least for me, when you were talking and talking in story, like about the, the calcium baby, I was like, that was so much more powerful to me than you mentioning like other writers that you're similar to or the genres that you could be part of. Like you telling that story was so much more powerful. And I was like, oh, I'm interested now. Like I want to read that. Yeah. Yeah. I actually <laughs> want you to send that to me. After this, I think <laughs> What's so great about short stories too is like, they're so underrated because I can get a feel for this author and get the complete emotional arc in a few minutes, maybe 20 minutes, hopefully 30 minutes top. That would be a long short story. And then it's like, we're done. And they could start to really like you. And this is where, again, going back to the forms of content that have captured 
generations, we think about like Dr. Nightmare. So Dr. Nightmare creates horror content on, on YouTube. And he basically is like creepy pastas that he goes on Reddit and he finds stories on Reddit and then repurposes them. And we don't know if it's fictional or not. Like, honestly, they could all be fictional. There's this kind of illusion that it's real and it's just scary music underlaid of those images. So basically just telling stories, making it a bit immersive. And like I, last time I checked, like at least 3 million subscribers, it might be well over that. So there's tons and tons of people watching this. And this is what I would watch. Like, because we have to think about even in terms of our attention during the day. I would just turn this on when I'd find a new one because everyone's already habitually opening these specific apps. And then like I'm sucked in for 30 minutes, like while I'm like maybe like doing doing like a chore or like working out. And th these are things that are really, really popular. And I, I de definitely think too, leading with the story where people people need to think this is a Terry story at the end of the day. And, and Stephen King, I'm glad you like him. He's my favorite author. He's wacky. He's bizarre. Stephen King doesn't say, oh, yeah, I write like this author and this author, so you should read me. He's like, no, I'm going to tell you this like really weird character. That's like definitely like uncomfortable. Like you're like, why are you writing this dude? But also like <laughs> keep writing like, yeah. And that reader, like you need to think that about you. And, and maybe all of your stuff doesn't hit with every reader. But really, is that true for any author? But you're going to be able to develop that unique brand because I don't think there's many like dude writers because most of your comp authors which you shouldn't mention to your readers i don't think you should just lead with your story but they a lot of them were dudes i don't think they're going to be writing about stone babies like that's like already so unique so interesting and fits into the, this feminist slant that you have which would connect with a specific subset of this whole world i can't tell you exactly who i don't think you could even tell me who but the biggest thing i see is like just test before you write a whole book because investing time into writing a book is like disney producing a movie without knowing if the franchise is going to succeed. It's not the best idea. And it, you know, you said the the feedback cycle of being an author is so long and that is so true. And I'd mentioned this in the Facebook group recently that some authors like me, you write one book, right? And you're marketing that book and that's the audience you're pulling in, but that may not be your brand. And that's been the case for me. And I, you, you know, the example of Neil Gaiman, like, if you're a Stardust reader and fan, you may not be a Sandman reader and fan. Like if you just thought Neil Gaiman was Sandman, you're emo, goth, moody fiction over there. If you read Stardust, you're into happy adventure stories, right? And so, but when you look at those stories as part of his canon and his whole body of work, then you get a vibe. And I'm the same way where I wrote the first two books of my contemporary fantasy series which is very different than my short stories and very different from my science fiction. And so I wrote one book and then I wrote another book and that came out two years later. And then the third book in the series came out two years after that. So now I'm six years into my author career and I've only written one series and that series attracted certain people. Then I started writing short stories and getting short stories published. A lot of those are sort of that darker, creepy pasta kind of adjacent area. Those are very different readers. So they come in, then they read the contemporary fantasy and they're like, what now? This is not who I thought she was. Like, I like a particular story, not a particular, her brand. Now, 10 years in, I've written enough work that I've got that AB feedback about who I am as an author and who my ideal reader is for my brand and not for specific books, but it took 10 years to get that data. And it's the same sort of thing like with a newsletter. I send a newsletter monthly. So if I do one month and it's kind of like crickets, it's like, well, was that a bad month or you know, was it the content? So now I have to send another newsletter. So two or three months goes by before I'm like, 
people are not engaging with this content. I need to change it up. I need to change the frequency or the content or something, but it's months. And so, yeah, that has also been a huge struggle is you need data, but getting that data sometimes takes forever. Well, what you can do, because I'm, I believe in repurposing content. So what you would be able to, because as authors, we only have so much time and we feel like we have to be everywhere. So you should not create everywhere. You should have this foundational piece. And it seems like, so a commonality between Stephen King and you is that you both seem to write short stories and that's how he got his start. And I do think like as much as you've studied Stephen King, it's probably worthwhile going back and studying him 10 times more in terms of how he's operated his brand and business. You know, I think his brand that you building, not that you're going to build the same brand as his at all, but Michael Anderley talked about how if he studied James Patterson, he would have saved him years in his brand. He has a very different readership than James Patterson. Definitely very different brand, but the same kind of strategy of this idea. That's Michael Anderley, who's very well known in the indie community. You obviously have a different strategy. And my advice would be, so you write a short story that's a thousand words, right? What you can do with that short story is what I said. You could literally create a YouTube video about it. You can probably create three TikToks about it, honestly, like taking the same text. Like you're not changing anything. That same newsletter or that same short story can go out in your newsletter and that same short story can exist in your subscription a month earlier and and the readers can get access to that and now you've created from one idea hopefully like you know a few hours of writing you've created five pieces of content that'll go in all these different areas that can engage your existing audiences and continue nurturing them and then hopefully go out on these discovery platforms places like youtube and tiktok and find you new readers because you're not going to find new readers in your newsletter you have to participate in things like book funnel but it's very hard to find the right readers doing that. You can, and it's, it can be worthwhile, but you could really find the right readers on these social platforms. And I'm not trying to say everyone, it'll work for everyone at all, but it's going to get you more data. And if it's flopping, you could think, huh, let's go back and then let's look at the retention graph because you can't see when people stop reading your story on any platform. You can see when people stop watching your videos on all these platforms. So you could start see, oh, this is a three minute long video and at second, like one thirty, there's a dip off. Oh, that's because the paragraph before, like I totally went on a tangent and I lost my reader. That means that I should next time not do that. And you'll just slowly keep refining this. And it takes a long time, but the, the scale is tremendous. Even if you're not getting a million subscribers, having 10,000 subscribers is very doable and way more powerful than one could imagine in terms of being able to drive readers to your newsletter. That could be easily a couple hundred engaged fans for you, which is worth a lot. Yeah. I think that's, you know, going back to kind of the original point of smaller, but better fit funnel versus the very wide funnel, you know, and, and trying to, to connect with people that way is much more valuable. And then, but just figuring out what that is. You're leading with trust as well, right? Instead of yeah. sales, if you're running a Facebook ad, we always have to position ourselves in a Facebook ad. We always have to say, oh, we're in this market because you have to, you don't actually trust me. How are you ever going to trust an ad? So I, you're going to have to trust what I'm telling you that's similar to something else, which for someone like you, who's like creating their own unique way of things is like shooting your brand in the foot. It's not going to do you any good. So you have to figure out how can I create unique positioning for myself? So you need to lead again with something that can build trust in readers that isn't going to sell them because no one wants to be sold immediately. So that's leading with your story. But then it's like, where can I just get someone to click on my story? And that is where we go back to this world of like serial fiction and to just apply a broader lens to it. As I tried to hammer home, serial fiction is more than just text on a page. It can be repurposed into content on other social platforms that maybe your audience exists in, in bigger numbers on because Wattpad it will not be fit for every genre. But 
serial fiction podcast and crime and thriller are one of the most popular podcast genres. I've already mentioned this in the podcast, but 15% of podcast listeners only listen to fiction podcasts. Realm.fm is a huge company doing this. Some podcasts get millions of downloads a month in the fiction space, meaning, okay, thriller readers don't read serial fiction on Wattpad. They might not even be on YouTube, although they actually are, but they're definitely reading the like serial fiction podcast. And you can get this whole thing. Creepy pastas are huge on YouTube. I'm just telling you that. They're massive. So like you should you should definitely look into that space because like there's I like have multiple friends and I I don't hang out with like horror friends. Not that like you could have a horror friend group, but I just like they're they're just like people who exist in my life who are obsessed with creepy pastas. So this is something that's like a phenomenon that you could tap into and create your own unique lane in. Yeah, I think it's then the, the the challenge becomes the time, right? Now now going back to like that initial, I'm like, yeah, I probably could go find my people on YouTube or TikTok, but A, I gotta learn those platforms and then I gotta learn like I have to record videos and now I have to learn video editing and sound. So then as an author too, you have to kind of figure out kind of where your niche is in terms of TikTok. like I've had, I spent so much time learning like how to do a newsletter and onboarding a newsletter and made so many mistakes running a newsletter and finding newsletter software. And then it's, you know, Facebook ads and spent and set so much money on fire, so much money on fire with like Facebook ads and then Amazon ads and then BookBub ads. And the, so as an author too, I think that is always difficult and frustrating is like once you get the data and then it's like, okay, now, I have to try these different things. And that's why I like going back, you know, to the beginning, like those author communities, like when you band together with a bunch of other authors to be able to cut well, down some of that work, that could is also do good. that with this, right? Because you might have, and you don't even need to collaborate just with other authors. You could collaborate with other creators. I've seen people do this literally mm. in the book world where they've had a creator who creates basically exactly what they're writing books about, but they're creating like a history creator who's like sharing like their like 30 minute lectures about history. And you'd be surprised there's hundreds of thousands of people listen to like 30 minute lectures in history. They're nothing special. It's just a guy either standing there or like there's images over it. That's really, really common. And then like, they'll like partner with the guy to be like, Hey, you know, this is, this is my book. So you could tap into existing creator audiences to test things. And then another thing is you could literally say, Oh, you are an author. Who's really good at creating YouTube content. Who's like likes doing video. Then what if we created a joint channel that was five of us that you kind of took on a lot of running that, but then I can focus on the newsletter. So if you want to collaborate with authors across platforms, that's what you could do. If you don't want to collaborate with authors or you're not in that position yet, my honest advice is focus on one platform. But in the beginning, you have to do a discovery platform that's going to find you new people. And just plain and simple, newsletters don't find you new people. Like you're never going to send a newsletter out to the world and have an algorithm pick it up and find you new people. And I'm not trying to say we should worship algorithms. There's plenty of ways to find new readers, but just I've seen very few authors successfully have a viral newsletter. I've seen very few authors have a newsletter that just by publishing, pressing publish on that newsletter generates them new readers. There's cumulative effects there. If you have 10,000 readers, 1% share, yes, you'll get more, but how do you get started with a newsletter? That's where it's a lot to learn. But when you go to a, these discovery platforms, serial fiction being an example of one as well, like all these serial fiction platforms, you don't have to necessarily worry about how am I going to bring readers to here, to this little thing. It's how do I create great content that fits within the rules of this platform and adapts my story slightly to fit the psychological 
expectations of someone here. I mean, you could literally just go back to, okay, when am I going to trigger this dopamine in someone to get them to keep watching? That's like a very thing that the biggest YouTubers do all the time. They have teams, there's full-time YouTube retention specialists for these creators who get 50 million views, like full-time jobs studying these graphs and then analyzing it. So this is like a massive industry that people are playing hard, but you as an author can begin to break in on that with whatever thing it is. But yeah, my biggest advice is don't be on all platforms. That's like very much a bad idea. You have to find one and stick with it like for not like 30 days, but at, commit to at least 90 days of consistently doing something. Because just like subscriptions is all about consistency, creating on any platform is all about consistency and building that trust. And if you can stick to it for 90 days, you'll probably have a good signal of where it's going to go if you like the process or not. And if you hate the process, just stop it and go somewhere else because there's really not too many big platforms that you could try. Like there's, if you're trying to do this creating thing. And the other big thing about it, which is why I support this maybe sometimes over ad advertising, although advertising can be useful, is that you're spending your time still writing and we will build a system for you or hopefully you can build a system for yourself that maximizes the time that you're still creating stories because you're creating stories for these other platforms, not advertising, not marketing content. You're creating stories that can be used elsewhere. You're still building up your intellectual property. You're still building up your back catalog. You're just releasing it in maybe a slightly different place than you originally would. So hopefully that can marry this problem of like, oh, well, I'm just spending this time marketing. It's like, no, 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 no. You're spending this time creating because you are a creator. And that's what creators do. People want to see you create things. And I think we have to lean into that. That's like my big, like the, the big thing that I want to drive home. I don't know. <laughs> I think, you know, it goes back to that authenticity thing, right? Again, like when you're just doing a marketing thing to do a marketing thing, it's, it's always going to fall flat because it's just, it's not authentic. It's not going to resonate with people. It's not going to build that trust. It's not going to interest them in you. It's very forgettable. And so leaning into who you are as an author and the value you add or, you know, what you create and focusing on sharing your creativity in different ways and getting that creativity into people's hands is as long as you focus on that, I think those are always the times that I've been the most successful is just always remembering that I'm not marketing. I'm creating and sharing that creativity, whether it's through a video, through a short story that I'm mailing to people as a chat book, whether I'm putting into a newsletter and emailing, whether I'm posting on serial fiction site, I'm sharing what I created. And, and having that mindset, I think, is part of the, the success soup, the, the ingredient in that success soup. Finding the right platform, obviously, finding something that you engage with as a creator, like if I hate TikTok, then it's just going to be a grind to, to create there. Right. So like, those are all part of the ingredients yeah. you don't need like, to be yeah. on TikTok if you don't like it. And yeah. I think similarly on this point of creating, maintaining consistent, my final question for you is about what have you learned in doing your subscription and it may be not having the financial success that you'd expect. And, and you could even share a bit of how that's gone for you and maybe what you're thinking about doing next. Yeah, I have consistently been frustrated with a lot of the advice that's out there because I'm finding that it's like a rope bridge and there's a bunch of boards missing. Like people are like, identify your ideal reader, set up a newsletter, then set up a subscription. One, two, three, easy peasy. And I'm finding there's a lot of little micro steps in between that get skipped and, you know, going back to like that AB testing and, and data and discovery, right? It's taking me a very long time 
through try fail cycles to like find out what those missing steps are. And I've realized that I tried to jump to subscriptions too soon, that I had not done the foundational work. And now I need to kind of go back. And I've got an onboarding process to my newsletter through BookFunnel, but I haven't done a great onboarding process. Like I said, I'm not even introducing myself until yesterday when I changed the content of my emails where I was like, here's a newsletter from an author whose book you got that you probably haven't read yet because you literally just downloaded it yesterday. And so I was like, yeah, I think that's the big thing. People are not going to jump to your subscription unless they're engaged with you in some way. Either they love the content or they love you personally. Those are the two things they're going to kind of glom onto. They love what you do or they love you and want to support you. And even if they love you and want to support you, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to come over to your subscription. Because I see I'm not the only person who's like, I can't even get my friends and family to join it. And they're, like, they're not going to just give you money because you're cute or you're their kid or their sister or something like they got financial trouble too, unless you're giving them, they can see you for free. So of course they're not going to pay to <laughs> interact with you. So yeah, you got to go through and make sure all those foundational steps are there. And so I've backed up to the beginning and like rejiggered who I'm onboarding through book funnel, trying to find those better yeah. matches. Then am I onboarding and engaging them through my newsletter? Have I created content in the newsletter that's engaging people? And that's where I'm focused right now. And then once you're doing that, if you're giving people free content and they're engaging with you and they bought your books and then you're like, here, give me money in some other way. They're like, for what? So then you've talked about warming people up to the idea of a subscription and what are they going to get? And are you giving value content? And I started out with my subscription doing monthly chapters of the fourth book in my series, thinking that fans of the series would jump over wanting to read the book in hindsight. And I have all my best insights in hindsight. I never seem to be able to think this through ahead of time and save myself from failing. But in hindsight, I was like, I my books are sl slower paced, first of all. I don't write like sticky page turners. So people are not hanging on a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter going, give me the next chapter. I must have it. That's Those a good idea books. for descriptions, by the way. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And monthly also, like that's just also kind of, if you're writing something where people are like, give me the chapter and you're only doing it monthly, like that people are like, okay, I can't deal with that level of stress. Like I can't even watch a Netflix show these days. Like, unless I know that it's been renewed, like I'm going back and watching stuff from 2015 because I know that it's wrapped up and done and there's no cliffhangers and I don't have to sit there waiting two years for the next season to come out. So if you're doing that to your readers and they do not like that dynamic stress tension, which I do not as a reader, I should have done a weekly instead of a monthly. So even just looking at all of those things, I was like, this was never going to work. I need to rethink the content that I'm offering. I need to rethink the frequency and who I'm appealing to. And so, yeah, I'm going back and rejiggering the whole thing <laughs> from soup to nuts, basically. I, first of all, think that's very hard to admit to yourself sometimes. It took me losing roughly like $10,000 at a pocket, just publishing and not making money back to realize that me just spending another $10,000 publishing more books and spending more money in ads wasn't going to magically fix what was a broken system and wasn't working for me. And I really like understand where you're at. And I think that for me, as much as I share advice in this podcast, I'm very much still on that journey. And I guess at this point, I'm mainly working on Ream. And the last couple of years have been focused on working on technology companies. But if I was like full-time focused on my author career, I'd be doing the same 
thing as you, which is really diving into these hard questions. And they're difficult. They're very difficult. But I, I do know from my time in, in YouTube and, and live streaming that the faster you can iterate, the better, the faster you can fail, the better, and the cheaper you can fail, the better. Because you will succeed one day and almost no one succeeds their first time. Almost no one. I feel like after three failed businesses across different industries, I finally now know a bit about what I'm doing and I'm feeling ready to like actually create something that works and that's difficult. So we have to be able to know that we can play it, this game of like being an entrepreneurial creator for the long run. And it's, it's difficult. I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's not something that will ever work probably in the timeline you want it to. Things take longer than you think. You have less time than you think, which is ironic. It takes longer, you have less time to actually do it. But that is the challenge of being a creator. And I think you were super inspiring because you shared with us today so much interesting information. And I'm walking away from this because I kind of thought I knew what the title was going to be coming into this podcast, but all of you now will know the title, which is something along the lines of setting up the foundation of your subscription. And I think this was really, really valuable. I learned a lot from talking to you. I hope y'all listening did. So Terry, thank you for being here. And as one final word, do you have one final piece of advice looking back at your subscription to authors who are maybe trying to figure out this foundation? who are thinking about starting their subscription, when would you start your subscription? There's no right or wrong answer to this, but when would you, in hindsight, say you would start your subscription? And how are you going to do that differently next time? I think my one final piece of advice would be take the problems in the smallest possible bite. If I look at my newsletter, I'm like, nobody's engaging, right? That's a big problem. But when I start breaking it down into minute step-by-step, step, am I onboarding the right people? What am, how is the onboarding going? What is the content? When you start getting into very finite, small problems, it's much more manageable to start tinkering and figure out what's going wrong. And it's often not one big thing. It's a series of very small things. And so I would say, just break it down into bite-sized steps and tweak each step. And then the whole thing kind of gets straightened out. But when you're just like, oh, newsletters don't work. I'm no good at newsletters. Scrap that. That's because you're trying to take the whole ball of wax. And so same thing with subscriptions. Yeah. Like my subscription failed if I went, I just don't write stuff that, you know, lends itself to subscriptions or my, my fans don't want to do subscriptions. I would have walked away. But now I'm looking back and I'm going, I can see about 20 things I did wrong and I'm going to try fixing each of those and then see what happens. It, it's much more manageable and it's easier to see where things have gone awry. In terms of starting the subscription, you know, I have so many reviews of my fantasy series on Amazon of people who are like, damn, she can write. She writes great books. I just, I hated this character and I'm not going to continue with the series, but I will read other things by this author. And so I wish I'd had a way to connect with those people, you know, and like find them. So I would say you got to start early on as an author, like pre-building and I realize now, like even like every time I release a book, I'm like, hey, I released a book. And it's sort of like crickets because I haven't warmed people up. Like it's coming three months, two months, like countdown, give them samples. So I think it's always thinking about that engagement, right? And bringing people into your process and building that trust and that authenticity. And you got to do that from day one, whether you're posting pre, like unedited word vomit, on WordPad or in blog posts or sending out in your newsletter, you know, or you're telling people like what the inspiration for your work is and involving them in that process. 
or just building community, going out, making friends, talking to people, whatever it is, start that yesterday and keep building it and put some time into fostering that. Even if you don't have a story you're working on, there's probably stuff bubbling in your head that you could be sharing. Like, I don't tend to like to share my failures with my readers, but maybe I should be. I have a short story that was going to be my Christmas chat book this year that I just can't get that story to gel and it's making me crazy. It won't shut up in my head and it won't shut up until it's done, but I've been working on it for six months and it just won't come together. But maybe I should talk about that to my readers. Like, hey, it's not that I'm not doing anything and you haven't heard from me. Like you haven't had a new story in six months. It's this one story is a real bugger and I can't get it to work and it's so frustrating. You know, and even just building those interactions with people. And so that would be my advice too, is just, yeah, thinking about how to build that, where you're building it, you know, whether it's a newsletter, a TikTok video, YouTube, Facebook, whatever it is, Mastodon these days, you know, but building that community and start today, that's going to be the foundation for your subscription later. That makes, ah, I, I love it. It's really great, great advice. And I just want to say one final piece of advice to everyone, which is that when you fail, it's not always your fault. We always like to blame ourselves, say that we're not good enough. Everyone has a different process of learning and a different process of evolving. And when things don't go your way as fast as you want, it's not because you are a failure. You are not a failure. Sometimes just things are out of our control that we begin to understand more. But Terry, thank you so much for this amazing, amazing interview. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that was another episode of the Scriptions for Authors podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. And a huge thank you to Terry, if you're listening, for coming on and having a great time together. I loved it. And if you enjoyed this podcast episode too, I have a favor to ask for you. This is a different one. Haven't asked this yet of y'all, but I'm curious what you would like to hear from us next. Is there a guest you would like us to bring on? Is there a specific topic you would like us to talk about on the Scriptions for Authors podcast? We would love to hear from you. We always have plenty of ideas, but the best ideas are the ones that y'all want us to do. So let us know what you're struggling with in descriptions, things that you would be interested in hearing us chat about, and send it to the email. I'll put it in the description, but contact at ream.ink. I'll put it in the description as well, so you'll find it there. I'd love to hear from you. And if you have any other feedback on this podcast about how we can make this a better listening experience for you, always open to suggestions always open to making this as awesome as time as it can be for you. But I don't want to take up any more of your time. So I will say thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, happy writing. And don't forget, storytellers rule the world.